On this week's episode, we welcome Michelle Ree. Former Chancellor of Education for the District of Columbia, uh, Michelle Ree, where her numbers are still impressive since she left uh, in 2010. You just listened to the Attorney General. How do you respond to what he had to say? And I can tell you have a lot to say. I do have a lot to say. Um, I, I very much disagree with, uh, with Mr. Barr on a lot of what he said. Um, you know, I, I personally have not seen, uh, you know, circumstances where, where school districts or, or teachers are teaching. He's referred to something called transgenderism. I don't, I don't see that. Um, I think if what he's referring to is schools and educators trying to create safe spaces for children um, who have, you know, lots of different, they're having lots of different identity questions um, and having schools be a safe place to uh, talk about, explore those things and, um, and feel like, you know, they can express those. Um, I think that's an important thing. Now, Certainly what he said was that if, you know, some families uh, feel that that goes against their religious beliefs, should they be able to send their kids somewhere else? Absolutely. I, I, you know, that's, that's their choice. But, um, but I strongly believe that it is our um, responsibility as educators to make sure that we are embracing and creating um, schools where all children feel like they uh, are in a place where they can learn and when you feel like people aren't accepting of who you are um, that's very difficult to do. Bruce Fine? I think Mr. Barr misstated the views of the framers of the Constitution. Um, they understood uh, the importance of religion and morality but as Mr. Madison said uh, if men were angels we wouldn't need government so they developed separation of powers to pit ambition against ambition. Uh, it isn't good enough simply to hope that religion will make everybody make the right choices. Indeed, uh, we were founded by immigrants fleeing from religions making the wrong choices. And you had someone early on like Thomas Jefferson speak of a wall of separation between church and state. That is at not at all to disparage the importance of religion. It simply states it's a private matter. And contrary to the insinuation of Mr. Barr, for a century, since 1923, the United States Supreme Court has sustained the right of individual parents to send their children to private schools that teach religion. Uh, that's not something that has crumbled at all. Indeed, if anything, recent Supreme Court decisions have even strengthened that kind of opportunity. So I think the issue is not really as Mr. Barr tried to suggest, well, do we support religion or not? It's how do we support it? And the framers thought that the best way to support it is keep government out of that equation. Let private individuals in their private sphere uh, practice their religion as they feel best and fit. Indeed, they worried if the government becomes involved, it waters down religion. Uh, it depreciates its value because it becomes something that's coerced rather than a free choice. And I want to just end by noting that there is not any Supreme Court decision that would prevent any individual student because of their religious beliefs during recess or otherwise uh, to pray, uh, to, accept, to display any kind of religious conviction. Uh, it's simply official 
organized religious gestures that are suspect. The name of this show is Crisis in Education. You spent three years as the chancellor of the D.C. school system. Is there a crisis? Is there any improvement on the crisis? And where is this crisis? I absolutely think there's a crisis uh, from the standpoint that um, students generally are not, um, can't count on uh, the public education system to provide them with the skills and knowledge that they need to be productive members of society. Um, some students certainly are successful, but it's, it's not something that all students and all families can count on. I think that we as a nation had been making some progress. I think that COVID uh, has been obviously a real issue from lots of different standpoints, um, but one of them that is becoming more clear is the impact that COVID had on on our children and their education. Um, I think over the next few years, we will um, start to see the data uh, and we'll, you know, I think early indications show that there was tremendous learning loss um, during that time. And it will be interesting to see how the school systems are able to respond um, to, that, uh, to that fact and to see like what, what strategies are we going to utilize and what are we going to do as a system to ensure that we can make up for that lost ground. Bruce, what do you say um, to this movement by parents that their kids are being doc indoctrinated from the high school to college? Well, I think there is some legitimacy to that. I think that there are some teachers, um, I would defer to Michelle to know how pronounced it is, uh, who do see the classroom as a way to uh, promote their particular dogmas. I would hope it's been the exception. Uh, but unfortunately, we see that uh, in uh, universities even. Uh, I myself have been you know, excluded from a presentation because of a particular viewpoint I held. Uh, and instead of teaching critical thinking uh, and permitting the students to decide about the diverse views that claim a, uh, a right to truth, uh, there is less tolerance of a view that goes against conventional wisdom. And to that extent, I think our educational system is stunting wisdom rather than promoting it uh, by not tolerating a complete diversity of views, however uh, uncomfortable it may be to someone. It is alarming to me, um, and this goes, I suppose, uh, by the name of microaggression that there seems to be a growing consensus within the educational community that one of their duties is to shield students from encountering an idea or a viewpoint that makes them uncomfortable. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has said the First Amendment's purpose is to protect speeches that shake confidence and convictions and maybe even stir people to anger. Uh, surely if we just think about how the civil rights movement was successful. It challenged entrenched beliefs about white supremacy. It intended to make whites feel uncomfortable with slavery and lynchings and otherwise. Uh, that's what I see as a great danger. Critical thinking is the touchstone of a wise person who can grow. And that doesn't seem to be the central point of education in a very large number of districts today. Michelle, what are your thoughts on critical race theory? Uh, you know, like many issues in education, I think that oftentimes people are on these polarized extremes when 
the sort of answer is in the middle. I mean, I don't think that we can deny the fact that um, the way that history has historically been taught uh, is not uh, accurate, that, that people need to understand from different points of view. Um, what what has happened um, and that it's not you know from the 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 same sort of you know white male point of view um, and so does that need to be broadened absolutely does, does do do kids need to understand different um, uh, sort of points of view of 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 how history has occurred yes um, you know but I think taken to extremes I hear some people and and I'm not sure that critical race theory is probably the right terminology to use. I think that's very uh, polarizing in and itself, in and of itself. Uh, I've also, you know, heard uh, parents uh, say, well, you know, my, my child who happens to be white, you know, is made to feel bad about who they are. Well, that's not the point. Um, but at the same time, as a white kid, do you need to understand systemic racism and how that plays out and how you are a part of that? Yeah. So, so, so um, you don't think of all the issues that kids are already facing in the classroom that they're just too many distract. What about what they're talks, the books that find their way into the classroom? I, so I don't think that those conversations are a distraction. I think that those conversations can actually help to make things more relevant for kids. When kids are reading literature that is not just, you know, the, the classics from one point of view, but that they can see themselves in or by authors who they can relate to, I actually think that it can be much more engaging for kids and it can help us, you know, ensure that they are um, meeting uh, academic standards uh, when, when they can relate to that. We have the affirmative action, privileged case, watered down gifted schools before the Supreme Court. Bruce? Well, I think that this is an earmark that is quite relevant to this discussion as to how we can create incentives and signals to students that educational achievement and uh, is very, very important and that we should judge by content of character and accomplishment rather than by skin color. And what these cases are about is whether or not uh, when we're creating uh, schools uh, for the very talented, uh, we do so based upon a race, uh, religiously neutral criteria where the accomplishments count. Uh, there's been many who have voiced disgruntlement that in many areas, um, Asian Americans seem to be disproportionately represented because they've studied harder, they get higher grades. But that should be an incentive for everyone else to work harder and not to suppress uh, what should be admirable achievements uh, that are attained here. Uh, there's another element to Armstrong. Uh, it's surely true that we aren't born equal in life. There are a whole host of circumstances over which we have no control that determine where we are, so to speak, at a starting line, and it's not all the same place. True enough, we don't really know how to assign a particular weight you know, to the disadvantage someone has. But I think experience teaches we need to encourage everyone to think you can succeed. Focus on your own energies, abilities, talents, rather than worrying about and you can understand what's happened in the past, but don't worry about, well, you're handicapped because somebody else was born in a more privileged position. Uh, as Thomas Edison said, genius is 1% perspiration, I'm, excuse me, 
uh, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And that's kind of the ethos that we need to inculcate in the classroom. Everybody can succeed, work hard, don't worry about the fact that we didn't all start at the same starting point. You're... I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't know how we can not worry about the fact that we haven't all started at the same place. If, if, some, if a, one group is starting from a way different starting point and then we say at the same time, okay, go and let's see who gets to the starting line first, and your expectation is that the people who are starting at a disadvantage can get there just as fast, I mean, that's nonsense. We have to take into account where the starting point is. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, and I see this as an Asian American person, right, is that, um, you know, Asian, Asian American students, while they may, you know, have certain test scores and, and, and grades, et cetera, we also have to understand the privileges that we have that allowed us to get there. So um, if we're not taking that into account and just saying, well, they worked hard and they, they got there, we have all kinds of students who come from uh, low-income uh, families who do not have access to the same resources, who have incredible aptitude and potential, but because they haven't had access to the same opportunities and therefore, you know, maybe not the same SAT prep classes, et cetera, to say that those, that, that shouldn't be taken into account in an admissions decision, I just think it doesn't make sense. But should Asians pay the price for it? It's, I don't see it as an Asian American. I don't see it as Asians paying the price for it. I see it as ensuring that all people are given um, uh, the opportunities and that uh, when you look at somebody and their potential to be successful um, in an institution like Harvard, um, that you're looking at a multitude of factors. Um, and that all of those factors together can help you decide whether or not somebody can be successful in that environment, not just based on pure test scores or how many AP classes they took. What if a, a, a kid went to a school that doesn't offer any AP uh, classes at all? That, that's not something that the kid themselves can help, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with how hard they worked. It has to do with the environment that they happen to be in. Now, I'd just like to make one comment, um, and that is, of all the, the factors that surely explain why we have different starting points, uh, one thing that the Supreme Court has said, uh, which I believe in, is that in the eyes of the law, uh, uh, there's only one race, there's only one religion, it's American, uh, and that whatever else you want to try to do to hedge the disadvantage someone has gotten, it should not and never should be simply the color of your skin. Uh, that's what the history of this country teaches, the history of, of mankind teaches. Uh, and that's what's at issue uh, in the Harvard uh, Law School case before the United States Supreme Court. If you want to give benefit because you're born into low income, it should go to everybody who's in low income, uh, not simply select out. And with regard to the fact of, you know, if somebody is given an advantage, uh, and say another applicant who with a higher score loses out. Clearly they're a loser. There's a zero-sum game at the university level because there are a limited number of admission slots. The idea that you can advantage some without disadvantaging others, I think, is, is, is not possible. Your quick 30-second response before we say goodbye. Well, I think to, to say, you know, you can't take into consideration 
um, you know, so solely uh, the, the somebody's skin color because we're all, you know, the human race. Um, the fact of the matter is that that racism exists, is alive and well. Um, we see that every single day in this country. So to pretend like we are living in this post-racial society, let's try to act that way because of certain ideals, it's just not tethered to reality at all. But it impacts the kids on both sides, these arguments. You know what, I, I think then the, the answer is why, why are we limiting the number of spots available? At, Expand them. Yes. So, you know, this argument about gifted schools and whatnot, why, instead of just saying, let's all fight over the crumbs, why don't we create more spots at more schools that are in demand amongst families? With the best teachers, best materials, the best libraries. Absolutely. Because not all the schools are equal. Kids don't learn the same way. That's right. They don't have the access to the, to the best. Sometimes these kids are in some of the most dire, dire neighborhoods and schools and the resources that they have. Thank you for listening to this week's episode 